Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. I'm here with Eamon Dugan, and we're we're blowing into bottles of bottle, bottles of water, aren't we, Eamon? And why would we be doing that? It's getting like the clangers, isn't it? I see. And so Charlotte Mobs, who appeared on the last episode, who's also your better half, she's told you to do this. I've been told to do it by my singing teacher because I don't mind saying, and it's good to get out there. I'm struggling a little bit with the singing at the moment, and this blowing into water and vocalising into water appears to be a, a really good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's good to be open about these things because I came to it for the first time when I was having undergoing some vocal therapy uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and the speech and language therapist who I was seeing uh, introduced me to this, the vocal therapy straws. Um, various uh, reasons why one might do it, but essentially uh, it's like a little vocal massage, if you like. If you engage in any sort of high-end sport, you might have a sports massage, uh, and straw therapy at some levels is akin to giving your vocal folds a vocal massage. And we're not going to try to explain the science because all the scientists will be sitting there and laughing and say, oh, they used the wrong word. <laughs> but let's get cut to the new jingle. Renaissance French chanson, bluegrass style. Mmm. Two, three, four. Name the composer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 ultimate crossover of Jeannequin and uh, I don't know Dolly Parton. <laughs> well, that's pretty much pretty much right. That is the Archway Mountain Lightning Boys. Archway is in North London. Uh, George Dallas and friends. Was there ever a better name for George for, Dallas? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, who we know from Dartington and, and all sorts of others. Uh, and he just thought it would be great to make um, a bluegrass version of Lassus. Is Lassus in that Lassus? Uh, mon cœur se recommande à vous. Yeah, I still remember George uh, playing or singing If You Love Me, accompanying himself on the banjo at Dartington all those years ago. 
Perhaps our eight listeners would like to uh, send some more suggestions in. Now, look, the last episode, um, we had Dr. Ginevra Williams uh, and Charlotte Mobbs, who is also Charlotte Dugan. She does the both. She is your better half. She is indeed my better half. Emphasis on the better. And was it she that got you into the, the straw thing? Uh, not in, initially, as I say, it was a, uh, my speech and language therapist. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry, I wasn't listening just then. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing new there. Um, but uh, Charlotte has uh, the sort of training that she's been uh, undertaking over the past few years uh, opened my eyes to, to lots of new, uh, really uh, constructive and helpful sort of vocal therapy um, techniques, uh, which I found enormously useful uh, and have really, I think, sort of helped me with my own singing. Now, we hope the last episode's got a little bit of traction. Um, and uh, people listening to about uh, girls' voices and hormones. Interestingly, uh, um, one friend of mine wrote on the thing, well, we've all got hormones, and I think they were pointing out just that they wouldn't want the last episode to be an excuse for choral conductors to say, oh, working working with girls is just too complicated. And she was emphasising the hugely positive side of the oestrogen-y part of the month and the sort of superpowers that, uh, that that gives them. But Given I'm really not in any sense a scientist, I'm gonna gonna leave that uh, uh, leave that there. But so we're gonna be coming back to uh, singing with girls and uh, with boys, uh, both in this episode, and we're gonna be dropping into National Youth Choir Girls Choir uh, from this summer that I've been promising for a while. But we're gonna start with a bit of music. This is it. Just occurred to me, it's 2023, so it's exactly 25 years since a choral album came out called Simonyi by Ifagellini and the Sadaza Chorale of Soweto, recorded in South Africa, partly studio and partly live. It was our best-selling album. Uh, Simuni is a Zulu word, meaning we are one. We went over to South Africa in 1995, I think two years after the sort of official end of apartheid. Um, it's, it's hard to overestimate just how much the whole political situation in South Africa was our daily bread. It was on the news most days, demonstrations, riots. Um, and now we're all sort of past that. But that was my sort of political awakening. So to go there in 95 was quite something. We were mostly doing Bach and Monteverdi and Purcell. But we met this group called Sadaza Choral. We were put together by Brett Piper, a fantastic bloke. And, and we hit it off with them and we'd prepared a couple of pieces and they'd prepared a couple uh, and we went back two years later and made an album, uh, which I think is sold better than anything else we've ever done. But you you don't find it out there now. Did, no. did you ever hear it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I was. I mean, I was aware of those. I mean, that was still relatively early in the Fagellini days, wasn't it? Uh, but Simonia was was absolutely on my radar on those times. For us, I, I suppose the interesting thing on the the disc is that you had a South African male voice choir, Sadaza Choral, Seventh Day Adventist Student Association, and us a load of Oxbridge graduates, uh, no graduates, um, with Roderick Williams. You're going to hear his voice first here. And although the strongest thing about the, the CD that came out, you can still find copies, I think, secondhand on, uh, online, but, but that's all has been out of print for a long time. And although those things where we did our thing and they did their thing and it comes together and makes something rather beautiful are perhaps the most successful tracks. The ones that both groups remember are the ones that changed us the most. And what you can hear now is a setting of Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd, by Monkitsi Seoketsa, whom we all knew as Boise. He would say to audiences, he would start explaining to them, and, and he would just say, you will love it. <laughs> and, and what you hear here is Roddy 
And then the eight of us singing in Zulu, the first verse, and then they all come in, and at the end, their church congregation come in. This is unedited. This is recorded live at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the Duba section of Soweto. Soweto is standing for South, South, Southwest Township. That's right. That's what it, what it stands on. It was this huge township on the end of Johannesburg that wasn't even on the maps um, uh, at the time that, um, you know, that I was first sort of getting into this South African history thing. Anyway, here's Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd. Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd, sung by Sadaza Karal from Soweto and E. Fagellini in 1997, and most of the congregation of the church uh, joining in in some form or other. Is that actually in a, in a service? 
I don't remember. It was certainly in their church. Hard to tell where one finished and the other began uh, at times. I do remember singing Wilkes, I Heard a Voice, in one of the churches on one of our on one Saturday morning, Saturday morning, Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath. And, you know, off we went. And, of course, Roddy leading again, I heard a voice. And off we go, Alleluia. Instantly, half the congregation <laughs> responding because they're listening to the actual text. And every time Karis would sing Hallelujah, that big high note at the end, much, much screaming and excitement. Um, and I think, you know, there we were in our sort of ties and our black folders. And I think it was... It was sort of happening anyway, but that was a moment for us when we realised it's text, baby. It's yeah. text. If you don't do the text, uh, and if you don't do the emotion behind the text, then what on earth are you there for? It's an extraordinary, just intuitive reaction, isn't it? And in that performance, when you're listening to that, the um, the rhythm, it's just, it's innate, isn't it? There's, there's no kind of, you know, these are the beats in the bar, and here's a rest, and this is how we swing it, and it's just completely natural, ingrained, uh, yeah, instinctive distinctive style of performance that's a very interesting comment because they they would read tonic so far but uh they wouldn't read normal staff notation but of course we had to have everything written down for yeah, us yeah, and uh and you can hear us at the beginning trying to find out where the beat was and of course we're all moving and dancing which is something we'll come to later in this episode as well um and they didn't really worry about that, not to the extent that it was so perfect because they were all singing off the beat. I think it's very hard without a rhythm section. But it was almost just melodic to them. Yeah, just It was just melodic and it flowed. And yeah. <laughs> it was glorious. Oh, we haven't seen them as a group since 2006 when they came out. There is a full film of this collaboration somewhere on the polyphonic... Maybe we'll put it on our own website. Um, uh, they came, when they came here in 2006 and they followed um, Greg... Browning followed us around on the bus for a few days. It was a, it was a very happy uh, occasion. Now, we were meant to be three today uh, chatting and my train was cancelled and then Sammy couldn't, uh, couldn't make it after all. Sorry for that. But at least it's two of us because I haven't seen you since that train station at Wandsworth Town near the National Youth Choir. Uh, sorry, the Genesis 16 uh, time when we were... Yeah, that was mid- middle of July. Yes. Where are we now? Middle of, middle of October. There were cinnamon rolls being made near the station. Oh, yeah. Um, and you seem to have barely touched the ground since. This is only when we were trying to find one day that we could all make about a month and a half ago. There weren't many. Um, brief summary? Uh, yeah, it's been a busy few weeks. Um, very happy return to the Covenant Trice, to James McMillan's Festival up in Ayrshire. Despite the shocking weather? Despite the, Yeah, God, it was an awful weekend, actually. Um, but the first time that I'd got back to work with the Festival Chorus in three years following uh, following COVID. Which James talks about, James McMillan talks about in a previous episode, actually, if people want to troll back through them. Yeah, very good. Um, and we finally got to perform uh, Philip Cook's Gloria, which he'd written for us, uh, I think, two years ago, which was yeah, meant to be premiere two years ago. Um, for anyone who's programming uh, Constant Lambert's The Rio Grande uh, in the near future, which we also performed with the Festival Chorus, two pianos and percussion section, um, and Philip's written like a companion piece for the same scoring. Um, and it's wonderfully sort of upbeat uh, and it was just so good to see them again Uh, and there was a really um, I mean there's a great energy at that festival anyway there's an awful lot of uh, local pride uh, in what James has achieved but also that you know what he's investing uh, in the area Um, but at the same time they've just had their funding cut it would seem 
and which is a story you just hear everyone, and we're all very cross with the Arts Council, but at the same time, knowing that they've had their money taken away and they are investing in other places. Still, one wouldn't want to say anything positive about the Arts Council for fear of all the um, emails that would uh, would come in. And, um, <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, You've been busy with 16, of course, and running workshops as part of that. Yeah, so at 16, I've been uh, choral pilgrimaging. Um, I was out uh, in Jersey with my chamber orchestra as well. Got to do Haydn Cello Concerto with Natalie Klein, which was an absolute joy. What a lovely lady to work with. Uh, and I'm just back from a week in Germany working with Korvec Ruhr in a... a Korvec Ruhr. Um, Sounds like the Steve Martin character, Dr. Ruhr. <laughs> A uh, lovely uh, group. We were based in Essen for the week, um, doing a program all of, of birds music, but with a with a it was like a narrated uh, program with a, a sort of storyline of, of birds life. It was called Birds Secret Service, um, and exploring his sort of yeah his Catholic recency and how he managed to sort of survive uh, in a in a Protestant uh, Britain. And I know other groups have been inspired by that recently. Um, just while the six, of course, doing their uh, their show, their secret mass, and the Renaissance singers last weekend at Ingerston Hall, um, which my daughter ended up singing in. Um, a rather wonderful show. They're sold out, sadly, couldn't get to see it. But in Bird's uh, stamping ground. Yes, I saw that. I was yeah, it looked wonderful. I, I didn't see the show, but I saw the sort of pictures of it. Uh, so lots of people sort of exploring those rich veins. Now. In uh, episode, uh, two episodes ago, where Sammy spoke to Dr. Katie Bank and Andrew Carwood, film, um, filmed, recorded just by St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, they were talking about Bird. And when Sammy's in the room, we're just going to have it out a little bit about period pronunciation, <laughs> which sparked off a certain amount of uh, 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 online uh, chat, um, although aware that it is of very little interest to most listeners, so we'll move on now. But uh, just relating that to where we're going to go now, we're going to be talking to Karis Jones, who has a St Paul's connection, as she'll explain. Um, but I thought it might be nice to hear something, given Nicholas's um, uh, episode on boys' voices as well, with St Paul's choir. I think this, this, this recording came out in 2017. This is the year that Karis joined, um, so probably done just before she was there. And it's a piece which I have very fond memories of myself this is Mendelssohn's Hear My Prayer we'll just do the first half of it because it's 10 minutes too long and there's some absolutely wonderful singing by the, the treble soloist Nathaniel Morley is it? No, yes I'm, Nathaniel Morley yes yeah. that, I mean that sounds like a straight Nathaniel Giles is the composer of the 16th century I'm thinking of this right, right, but it's yeah. a good 16th century wonderful singing this is some of the I'm, yeah I mean it is just wonderfully free expressive emotionally connected but also with um I mean, you'll hear the sound is is uh, is fulsome, and there's some vibrato here. I think we can use that word, um, but also some real artistry. The way he uses the text, it's very very mature singing, if you like. But no surprise really for someone singing for Andrew Carwood because he always encourages that kind of approach. But just let's just touch very briefly on the vibrato episode. Well, that is an old one, isn't it, from Coral Chihuahua a couple of years ago? But because Ginevra Williams talked about it, and she was just saying it's a completely natural thing. And there is this hankering for a pure boy's voice. Well, you won't get anything more natural and perfect than this. And what I suppose I find interesting about it is it's, it's completely free, yeah. as you say, and it's not fair to obsess on one child's recording of one two-minute piece. But you can also hear him just playing the building like a violin. Oh, Lord, hear me cry. 
way. And you can hear him sort of straightening it out at that moment. And I do understand where people get so exercised about the purity of boys' voices. It's because it's so transitory. But I do think that part of it is building generated. The boys are very, very bright, um, as are girls in the same uh, buildings, of course. They're, they're, they're playing the, the environment that they're in. Um, but, the, but the fact that it's over so fast, and I notice this guy is now a bass. <laughs> of course, he'll be after your job next. Anyway, so this is um, part of Mendelssohn's Here, My Prayer, um, St Paul's Cathedral Choir uh, with Andrew Carwood. And I'd failed to look up the organist. I'll put it on the track list. Simon track Johnson. Is Simon Johnson playing the organ? Simon.
Sorry to do this to you, but we've got to stop that there. How can we stop that Mendelssohn? Firstly, on the dominant chord, and secondly, with O for the Wings of the Dove, the next thing to be sung answer, because we must get on with the ep, and because you can go out there and pay actual money for it if you want the whole track. It's St Paul's Cathedral Choir, plus choristers from all over the UK that joined them for the project. There's a rather lovely one-minute film that accompanies it. Uh, Nathaniel Morley was the exceptional treble, and the CD is called Jubilate. We're in a soft room. <laughs> We're in a soft room. It's got cushions and things. We're at Queen Margaret School, um, just south of York. And we is... Well, introduce yourself, Karis. Hi, I'm Karis Jones. I'm a singer. I'm a vicar choral at St Paul's Cathedral. And I'm currently here because I'm one of the vocal leads for the National Youth Choir Girls' Choir. And we're, we're at the course. Elsa, you're working on the course as well. Yes, I am the senior soprano one section leader. And given we left Eamon at the last episode on Wandsworth Station with an incredible smell of the bakery coming around, <laughs> just say we've opened some rather nice Lou biscuits. And I see they've got chocolate on them as well, along with a chocolate picture of Henry VIII, which is nice. A Lou Lefebvre Uti something factory. Anyway, Lefebvre, that's what Lou biscuits mean. Well, as and you know, all choral courses march on biscuits. Yes, yes, they do. The, the, the sugar rush of delight. Um <laughs> Now we could talk. We could talk about National Youth Choir, but with the, the sort of headline thing, if, if if one looks you up, it's you were appointed in two thousand seventeen at St Paul's, was it? Yes, yes, I was. I was um, the first female vicar choral to be appointed. And on the news items, they talk proudly about for a thousand years, and you think, well, they didn't have a female one before. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, a thousand years um but you're now doing other things at st paul's as well aren't you yes i am project managing the um the start of the girl chorister program which is um an ambition long cherished by lots of people um not least me because you know i'm one of those uh professional choral singers who didn't have the chance to do a choristership when i was a when i was a kid and it's been a um an amazing journey for me um, getting involved in it because I believe so passionately that you know girls really need that opportunity to develop those high level musicianship skills um, and I'm so excited now that we're on the brink of it at St Paul's to see what it what it brings. It was interesting talking to Robert Quinney who passed through York last week and he was uh, off camera so to speak afterwards he was saying you know if a school inspector comes around and there's an opportunity given for boys that the girls don't have, then that's almost a question in, in law, really. So regardless of one's view on the whole thing of whether girls should have the, the opportunity, which of course they should, um, there's now a sort of legal issue in there in here as well. Yes, there is. Um, and I think, um, you know, it's been, it's been, um, it's certainly been an issue that has kind of come to more prominence because the school inspectors have have um, made sure that it's gone more up the agenda but actually most places have been thinking about it for a long time and this is this has just been a sort of catalyzing kind of force really um, and I think certainly you know in my own in my own backyard um, we've been preparing for it for for ages um, and part of what has certainly slowed things up over the last decade has partly been Covid and then a real desire to get it right um and um and that is really important you know we're going to bring these uh young people into a really high pressure um situation where the spotlight is really on them you know they could be on the telly you know at the next um major national service um we need to look after them properly we need to look after their voices properly just as we always have their boy counterparts so you know we're passionate about getting it right 
I rem- the only care I, I remember of being a boy chorister was my mum pumping me full of dextrosol tablets at Three Choirs Festival. I feared I would fall over having stood up for how many hours that day without stopping. What was your own background to singing then? Because here you are doing the job that we could sort of, that the UK is sort of known for. I mean, if you talk to people in Canada or, or the US or Australia or other places around the world, they know us for our 40-something cathedrals that just pump out these boys and girls that have had a fully formed professional experience by the time they're they're 13, which leads to a, a very specific sort of musical mindset and, and uh, education in its fullest sense. Um, but what was what was yours then? So I had I'm a, just going to eat this biscuit yeah. as well because it's smelling absolutely gorgeous. Biscuits are great. Mm. Um, I had a very strange peripatetic sort of a childhood. Um, so I um, went to uh, 10 schools before the age of 11 because my father moved around the world working for British Airways. Um, and so I didn't really have a kind of musical education, a consistent musical education. So I played the piano um, and I sang in sort of class wherever I ended up but I was in every educational sort of establishment you can possibly imagine from international schools to schools you know in in kind of um you know in Cairo that didn't have much musical provision to um to little primary school back in Ashurst where I learned three hymns which was pretty much the only Anglican music I then encountered until I came back to boarding school um at 12 um and then at boarding school at 12 um I was in the school choir in my all-girls school um, and I did ABRSM exams, um, but I was a terrible sight reader, really, and um, and uh, only really encountered a lot of what I currently do when I went to Cambridge, um, and I'd applied for a choral scholarship without any idea of the magnitude of the sort of Oxbridge choral system, simply because I was a bit short of cash, and I'd flipped to the back of the prospectus and saw that scholarships were a possibility, and I thought I'd chuck my hat in the ring and have a go, and it was only on turning up for the first audition that I thought, goodness, what what is this? What what have I got myself into? I'm going to hold on to that, because I remember discussing with, I think I remember discussing with Caris Lane and Rachel Elliott, who were Fangellini sopranos, back in the day that they of course hadn't had that um what we thought was you know sort of a male education giving that incredible ability to sight read yet they could sight read they could sight read fantastically as, as well or better than any of us um so it is possible without that and what you're showing here which i think is important because uh, what you're showing is that actually even aged 18 your brain is plastic enough to learn how to sight read fast because you say it again, the amount of repertoire you're getting through on a terribly short period of rehearsal before singing even song each day. I mean, you go into St Paul's, the, the rehearsal is, what, 45 minutes long, <laughs> something like 40, that? 45 minutes would be generous. We we often say we don't rehearse more than 22 and a half minutes for anything. Um, OK, so that's Psalms. Yeah. That's a Magnificat, Magdemitis, uh, uh, and an anthem, maybe a hymn, and the responses in 22 minutes. That's not even the amount of time it takes to perform them. No, it's about two thirds of the amount of time it takes to perform them. You know, so um, so is is this entirely a good thing? <laughs> the thing is, it's a specific thing, isn't it? You know, and and it's a skill we have in this country um, primarily that you know we're we're trained to be these excellent sight readers. Um, we are um, in a cathedral, of course. We are seeing the repertoire you know, it comes back. So it's not, you know, you're going to see Stanford in C a few times a year. You know, so it is possible for the conductor to say the canticles are by Stanford, they are in C. Let's look at the anthem. Um, uh, 
yes, it's completely different to a sort of concert choir working in the States, perhaps, where, you know, you have a set amount of, re- of repertoire for a term. You know, we're not memorising, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that, that relates back to the, uh, the voice note that um, our student out in the US sent about the different ways of working. I wonder whether this will all, will all join together. Yes, back in the summer season's final episode, Eamon and I had been chatting about how we used to listen to music, buy an album and listen to it repeatedly, versus the streaming and playlist habits uh, with no sleeve notes of today's uh, young listeners, and the question of how much these listeners get into text at all. Here's a response we received. Hey Coral Chihuahua team, this is Jacob Beard, a recent music history graduate from Chicago. As a young singer, I'm calling in to respond to your criticisms of the youth with a few comments and a question. First, I share some of your reservations, particularly in regard to the change in listening habits as a result of streaming. I grant that the deep listening you describe may not be happening as much. However, the variety of recordings available is still valuable. In particular, as an American, I have had the opportunity to hear excellent British choral groups through recordings and through streaming that I might not have otherwise encountered. This proved especially valuable to me for my undergraduate music history thesis on Parrot and Macmillan. Recordings such as those by Tenebrae, Vachis 8, The Sixteen, or Ifagiolini help form my internal vision of what choral music can sound like, as well as introducing me to music or artists I might not otherwise have heard. A case in point is the recent release of the Hyperion catalogue to streaming, such as recordings by Jeswaldo Six. Regarding text, I also share Eamon's fear about young people reading poetry, and I confess a general lack of that in my own life. However, this is one area that American choirs may have an edge over British ones, purely due to their lack of liturgical music commitment, and therefore greater time to prepare a concert. In my experience, most American educational choirs, such as University and Below, end up spending several months with a concert cycle, usually memorizing all of the repertoire and often spending entire rehearsals analyzing the text. That is probably not the case everywhere in the U.S., but in general, we don't have multiple weekly services to prepare for. Of course, this comes with its own drawbacks, not the least of which is your advantage at sight reading over us and overall comfort with new music. Perhaps you could speak to this, as well as any general observations you have on the differences between British and American choirs and young singers in particular. Thanks for all you do. I leave every episode with something new to think about and listen to. Bye. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, We can't really get into that now because we're in the middle of talking to Karis, but do everyone else hold that thought for an episode or two. And if anyone else wants to chip in, feel free to contact us via choralchihuahua.com. Meanwhile, here's the musical choice of Karis Jones. It's the final ecstatic part of Patrick Gower's Viri Galilei, Man of Galilee, uh, sung by Trinity Cambridge, directed by Stephen Layton with Harrison Cole on organ.
One of your colleagues just came in from uh, a session where he'd been uh, working with the National uh, National Youth Girls Choir. Is that the right title? It is. Uh, and and he'd been dancing all morning for an hour with them. Mm. And one of the issues I have with with singing and and, and can uh, fit the, the physicality, the connection with your body. And I wonder whether it's connected also to the business of improvisation, which I know Sarah Latto is big into. We were talking to her recently. Is where does the brain and the emotion get go down the path where you do one thing or the other? Because I don't know many singers who are happy to dance and sing and move their bodies around. There seems to be some kind of disconnect um, at some point. And it's lovely to see, with the right repertoire, of course, you know, you're probably not going to dance your way through Stanford and see, although you might dance through Sing Joyfully or Gibbons O'Clap Your Hands. That's a huge question. In the context of working with these wonderful young people, um, we are seeking to instill uh, and their appreciation of not just amazing music, but their body's ability to do extraordinary things. And I think particularly when you're working with young women or people who identify as young women, giving them something positive to do with their bodies has nothing to do with what they look like mm-hmm. um, is, is, can never be a bad thing. Um, speaking purely as a singer for a second, um, you know, my task as, as someone learning to sing and at the grand old age of 41, I would say I'm very much still learning to sing is um, to get ever better at making the physical process of singing more simple, more clear, but more strongly felt, if you know what I mean. And I don't see any difference for me now in that feeling when I sing Evensong than when I am singing a solo song or um, or you know, dancing around on the stage with the members of, of the National Youth Girls Choir um, because my voice is coming out of my body and my technique is such that that it is that felt, you know. Um, and you can get you can disappear down a real pedagogical wormhole here, can't you? But but um, but I, I think it's singing is such an important physical release for a lot of people. Um, and I think that's possible even in the confine, confines of the uh, choir stalls. This comes back to um, when Amy was meeting the Third Ages a couple of weeks ago. And they were talking how at the beginning of the rehearsal they can be exhausted after a, a day's work or just for whatever reason or upset. Um, but by the end of a well-run choir rehearsal by a, a choir leader who understands how, well, not just how voices work, um, because a lot of choir directors are, are keyboard players, but someone who really understands how people work, that they can feel energised and quite different. But that disconnect, especially in the in singers that have been primarily lived their life in the uh, Anglican cathedral tradition, is a thing, isn't it? It is, and um, I try and confront this. I, I um, teach the, the the choral singers of tomorrow in my work at, at Oxford University now. And one of the things I delight in, and my students would roll their eyes at me with this, is is making them realise what how singing is so important as a uh, less brain-led activity. Now, oh, of course, yes. everything is brain-led, of course, but, I mean, they can't think their way through it. They cannot simply read six brilliant books on how to sing and then be the world's best singer. It doesn't matter. You could read however many brilliant books on how to sing and be no closer to being a brilliant singer, really. It's you have to experience it and not only do you have to experience it you have to experience it for yourself repeatedly over and over again and that's the route to mastery now you're talking about university there certainly my colleague susan young and alex ashworth um who teach 
often talk to me about singers uh, about who they just think it too much. And of course they do because they've come to university and they're trying to think hard about their singing and uh, um, they want to know how it works and they want the answers. Um, but maybe we just need a better quality of question. Look who's coming to the door. This is Joe Tomlinson. Welcome. Hello. Nice and, to see you. And tell you, t- tell us who, oh, tell people listening who you are. Uh, I'm Joe. I am here at uh, the National Youth Choir's Girls Choir course this week as principal conductor. And I work with a number of other choirs as director of a couple of London choral societies. Uh, one is Constanza Chorus, which I started myself about 12 years ago. And the other is the Whitehall Choir and do lots of other bits and bobs like uh, vocal coaching. I teach conducting and I also sing as a freelance singer. It's a lot. The whole we're back to the um, we're from one um, partly salaried person to the, the freelance thing. I've had a salary at the University of York and through COVID, you know, which was an incredible uh, luxury. But going back to that completely freelance uh, basis, it's frightening, isn't it? Financially, it's it's frightening. But here you are. Um, now it's Friday of a course. Do you have any energy left at all? <laughs> I've got an amazing team here, um, some just superbly talented people like Karis and um, Mariana, who is leading on musicianship and is also um, director of the London Symphony Chorus. Yes, tell us a little about her, because that's a new appointment. She's not here to speak for herself, but that's a very exciting new appointment. She's just so wonderful and inspiring, and we've been so lucky to have her here working with our members. Um, we've been working a lot um, sort of based on Kadai. Uh, principles uh, which might mean uh well um using solfar so based from uh, kudai's um method of teaching um and also kind of using we've been using a lot of movement in our um musicianship teaching we were talking about this already <laughs> well we we're talking about the the, dis- the physical disconnect uh, at times so that's interesting yeah so we're kind of trying to tie it in quite holistically across the way we're we're working with our young people to embody the sound sort of rhythmic stuff um teaching them about pulse and rhythm but also connecting into their bodies with their their technique as well i have a, a thing with the 24 at the university of york my my main focus with them at the start of a year apart from you know tuning things and all that kind of thing is one of the very few things that we really know as opposed to suspect about what they valued in the 16th century from singers, which was enunciation. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, all choirs say, oh, yes, we're very interested in text. And, of course, there isn't much time to be interested in text if you've got 22 and a half <laughs> minutes before even so, although you can let your hair down in the, the Psalms, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I wonder whether that that real dedication to text and the physicality of text because some composers you know I was talking to well I won't say their name in case they they feel it wasn't something they want reported but they were they were talking about the the process of writing a piece and they said in the end I wasn't sure what that poem was about but I loved the sound of some of the words and if you read E. Cummings for example there's just a pleasure in the noise the words make Mm -hmm. that time and that is a first step to enunciation except accepting that that the sound the the words make is is a crucial part of the sound. Do we do we lose that in the sort of obsession with line? I mean, obviously we're all obsessed with line, and that's a perfectly good good thing, and nothing to be ashamed of. But I think Joe and I are entirely on the same page with this, which is you know line is all very good, and and you know we're both singing teachers, and we talk a lot about vowels, but you know obviously the consonants are just as important, um, and um, which is to say placed on the on the singing line, but also 
you know, text fires imagination, imagination fires breath. So if you have all those things lined up and then you have a singer that takes a breath and that singer is perhaps not so technically proficient or technically aware, actually the imagination and the breath will take them most of the way. Um, I'd like to unpick that because that's... People like Nicholas Mulroy will keep saying to me, you know, singing isn't complicated. And I think you... It may not be uncomplicated for you because you're very good at it, but the, the simplicity of it, I think, is, is you know, the business about not thinking about it so much. So c- can you just slightly unpick the breath fires the imagination or the imagination fires the breath and what that might mean? So there's this amazing and now very expensive on Amazon, sorry, book um, <laughs> called Singing and Imagination by a venerable English baritone, I think, called Thomas Hemsley. Mm. Seek it out. Um, and he argues, amongst other things, that... Um, uh, we take breath in an emotional way, which makes is which is self-evident when you think about it. You know, your breathing mechanism is affected by the way you feel, but also we breathe in different ways when we're in different emotional states. And his his theory is that you know, um, and he goes deeply into technical detail about which vowels and and blah 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 blah, which I will not bore your listeners with, but. Um, but this idea Stephen might be quite interested, but never mind. <laughs> that you can yeah, you can come back and ask. But but the um the you know so so put simply you know if we're doing a piece where um which is joyful and the theme for our course this year is celebration so you know we've been talking a lot about joy, um you know if one breathes in as if one has just heard something joyful or is about to co- communicate something joyful there is an energy to that breath that has a kind of automatic result in terms of the way your singing mechanism moves around it um you're not going to be able to prove that over the over a podcast like this mm -hmm. but that sounds absolutely fascinating and i I suspect it's what we all all feel do you uh, vowels a thing for you you were talking about vowels we talk a lot about vowels in the way we're teaching here and um and it helps our uh, blend and our tuning if we get the vowels to match and be um uh, appropriate for the right time but also consonants and vowels we think about color of course related to the imagination but they are helping color the music so every bit of text has um, has different feelings and colors and we've really been trying to work on that with the members one of our focuses here this week has been on sort of self-confidence but also performing energy and um, and and been talking about the text in quite a lot of detail this is lovely because it's something you can do over a week course. It's not something you can do before Evensong. Um, is it though? Um, well, go on. I mean, we, in Evensong we do a lot of repeated text, do we not? And one of the things I think is fascinating about Evensong is that you sing a Magnificat every time. It's the same story. But how is it that Howells thinks that goes? How is it that Howells thinks that goes in a different mood in a different building? How is that when Palestrina does it? How is that when, you know child does it it's it's different every time and this is the i'd so i did a history degree not a music degree and i think this is the historian in me talking i'm fascinated by all of that i'm fascinated by the magnificat refracted through the first world war the mm-hmm. magnificat you know refracted through matthew martin's brain i'm just it's the same text it's the same impulse um and so i think you can think about that you know it takes a certain mental effort though doesn't it because at the same time you're reading notes now if it's Stanford in C that's one thing but you are 
processing an enormous amount of information that is laid down in dots and dashes on the page that visually has nothing to do with the sound that the music makes. Um, and then, of course, there's the Psalms, which, I mean, that was when I was a chorister at Hereford, used to be the, the most fun thing, especially if it was the 15th evening, because there was a lot of them. They're quite gory and bloody at times. <laughs> and It's always a joy when you've got fabulous organists who can really get the the goaty bleatiness out of their <laughs> out of their instruments for psalms i find with the help of my god i shall leap over the wall there that was always sort of something thing, yes. down there <laughs> vowels i don't like talking about vowels because i have irritable vowel syndrome <laughs> interrupted cadence <laughs> ask you a very open-ended question here is there something is there something that you really celebrate about uh, singing that makes a difference to you from a day-to-day level or something that you'd really like to change about singing uh something if, you know if you if you ruled the world i'll tell you i'll give you an example if i ruled the world i'd ask people to have a year off before they came to university <laughs> um we see so many people come to university with personal issues that i think would partly be changed if they just went and worked for a year and discovered how that changes everything. Yeah, I would. I It always makes me sad when someone says to me, well, the thing is, I can't really sing. Mm. And I know, because I've read the science, that regardless of how in tune you may think you sing, how well you may sing, how many lessons you've had, how professional you are or not, um, singing has a positive effect on everybody who does it, regardless um, of how they perceive their ability, you know, to be. Um, and I think whenever I hear someone, and it's particularly true of people who teach music, I quite often hear it from people mm. who teach music who are insecure about their singing. And they say, well, I can't really sing, or I don't really sing. And I say, well, do you sing in, do you sing in the car to the radio on the way home? Well, I do, but that's not proper singing. It's like, there's no such thing, you know. Yes, okay, you know, I can say that I'm a, you know, highly trained you know operatically trained uh you know cathedral singer now yes, we, have, we haven't even talked about your opera work but another time um but but honestly you know there is the value of you know singing along to a fabulous song on the radio is just as great in my eyes as you know someone performing a beautiful schubert song and it makes me sad when people kind of rate those things differently mm-hmm. so i think that's Cultural singing norms. is good for everyone Joe, you're looking at your watch because you've got to get back into a I session. So tell us a, a thing. Moment, yes. Um, so I think it is that difference between solo singing in any genre compared with choral singing. People just have this perception of being very clever because they can sing the right notes in the right order. And that's just just so boring. And I just want people to sing with passion, connect to the words, tell a story. I've been saying today to the National Youth Choir here, don't be boring and just make me excited by what uh, message you have to tell me with what you're saying. That, that connection is something, certainly in the, the York Music Department, we've been trying to connect between what happens in your singing lesson and what happens in choir. And so that it's not, oh, well, I, I sing in a very, very different way for choir. Um, but it is interesting to the extent to which that is uh that is a, a phenomenon and i think we all understand why and we all understand that there are brilliant things that particularly british choral groups do uh, and indeed american choral groups do and uh, other ones as well that requires extraordinary control but 
Um, control doesn't have to mean repression. Um, oh, where's this conversation going to go? Um, You're t- talking to the right people. I, well, <laughs> I know there will be as many people listening. So, no, I don't come to the, the choral tradition for... For, for to, you know, I come to the choral tradition to hear a choir singing as one. But Greg Skidmore said an interesting thing when he heard the 24 in concert. He said, I got the feeling that absolutely it was a choir, but I got 24 personalities behind it. And and that's what, which is odd, because there were 30 people in the choir. <laughs> um, and, and that is what you want. And this, this conversation is going to spark off more, but you've got to go, can you tell us, uh, what, what are we going to listen to now? What's your track choice? I was thinking while we're here that I should mention a track we recorded with the National Youth Choir, Girls Choir, last year. We had a new piece written for us by Joanna Marsh called A Short Story of Falling.
then I might know like water how to balance the weight of hope against the light of patience. Water which is so raw, so earthy strong, and lurks in cast iron tanks, and leaks along, drawn under gravity towards my tongue, to cool and fill the pipework of this song, which is the story of the falling rain that rises to the light and falls again. Had you heard that before, Eamon? And your first impressions? It's beautiful, isn't it? I think, you know, for a young singer, maybe not so experienced at uh, reading and understanding poetry, there's a lovely, it's a beautiful flow to it. it you know, Karis, and you mentioned in, in the interview earlier about just the taste of the language sometimes and the way that, that line about flowing along the pipework of the song. I love that. It's a great gateway. It, I mean, the, it's the poems by Alice Oswald. Oh, I think I was in her year at university. One of those strange things. I last saw her against the video machine in New College Bar <laughs> in 1988. Uh, she speaks very highly of me. Um, yeah, we should back announce a National Youth Girls Choir, Michael Higgins on the piano and Joanna Tomlinson conducting, who you heard introducing it there. Um, yes, it just flew. It reminded me of the, the Chopin raindrop prelude with the bing, 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 yeah. bing. Perhaps that was subconsciously in her background. Composers don't like it when you say that sounds like there's something... Because, of course, everyone reinvents everyone all, all the time. But that sounds like a very grateful thing. To, and it, very grateful piece to sing, like you say. Also, it reminds me of the way that Bird both uh, sets words, but he also somehow embodies the overall meaning of the poem or the text when he writes. Hake Diaz is a happy piece the whole way through, even though he's doing lots of little, uh, lots of little bits of detail in between. Yeah, there's some lovely pictorial qualities to the music. And some beautiful singing there. Very open, free, um, free-flowing sound. Yes, wonderful. We were going to play another piece of hers today, but then that came up. Um, we'll do a Christmas episode of Unusual Christmas Pieces, but I'm working on an album of her music at the moment when we're going to record in Winter's House. Um, I think, bizarrely, for the third time, um, because she wants another uh, SATB version of it. But there's a wonderful... Gisvaldo 6 or 5 <laughs> a recording that's just come out with Owen Park on the bottom it's just about to be released um, next next month uh, do go and search that out I think you can listen to that one piece on Spotify yeah, a wonderful bit of singing it's seriously good isn't it very very classy um, I like everything by her that I've, that I've heard Joanna Marsh I think I've yet to hear a piece that that I, that I haven't really, really enjoyed. Yeah, which which feeds us into a thing that uh, we were going to talk about maybe another time, which is about the whole business of commissioning. And, and and as a commissioner, your biggest worry is, A, whether the piece will be good, because, you know, there, there has to be a sort of fairly lowish hit rate. You know, a composer cannot write a banger every time. Um, and then there's the whole, do they write what you were expecting? And, and Roddy's talked about this, hasn't he, Roddy Williams, that... You know, his music doesn't sound like the last piece he wrote. Yeah. And and very often as a commissioner, you, you go to a composer because you've liked something they've done and you want it to be a little bit like that. <laughs> Lily Harris, I think, talking about this when she was one of the National Youth Choir young composers. Well, that was that piece and now I'm on to something else. But Joanna, for, for you and me, certainly has an extraordinary hit rate. You heard that, uh, the, the pieces she wrote for the Fagellini T.S. Eliot program in, mm-hmm. in 2021, uh, which we're about, about to record. Uh, something, something about the way she relates to words and the way, I think the way she still makes words 
audible because I'm going to go off on one now about publishers. I've been up at the ABCD, Association of British Choral Director Weekend. Fantastic that it was happening again and massively convenient for me in York. Not so convenient for anyone coming um, via a storm, Storm Babette, anywhere else. Um, brilliant to see people, lots of interesting uh, um, talks and networking and things. But talking to publishers uh, was hard-pressed to find them printing the text in there. Uh, how is one supposed, as a conductor, to get hold of a piece of music if you can't see at a glance what the whole thing's about so publishers make make an effort P print the poem presumably if if, if they're if they've got permission to set it then they've got permission to to write the, the poem even if it's a piece of church music well yeah. maybe especially if it's a piece of church music we need to know as singers we can't do you know we are lazy sometimes as singers we want to know how many top g's there are in our part but we need the text yeah completely and if it's in a foreign language we need a translation as well um, and you know this is why Sally Dunkley's editions are so great because as you go through each section of the text, there's the translation set at the top left of the page, and it's you know it's massively helpful. It's it's all done for you. Although I still think the um, in this cut and paste generation, God, I sound old. The use of writing something out yourself, having to write it into your score, just helps lodge it in your brain a little bit more. I completely agree with that, and I do still actually I have to write the translation in, otherwise it doesn't it doesn't stay in my brain. We're talking about commissioning now. You're you've got a concert with um, I was going to call them Tallis Chamber Choir, but they're now Thomas Tallis Society. That's, that's correct. Yep. In, in Greenwich, in St Alphage's Church, where Tallis is buried. Yeah, somewhere on site. And at the back left of the church, you can see there's a very old Tudor keyboard, part of an organ, uh, which it's thought that Tallis might even have played himself. Now you're going to be performing a piece by David Bednall, and it's one of those big forty-part um, pieces that people have written. Um, in to homage to Spem, and you'll be performing Spem and Alum in Hugh Keats' uh, edition, which has got subtle differences that we won't go into, but I think it's an important moment. Um, we were just trying to think how many of these 40 part pieces that are spin offs of Talis and Strigio, uh, Strigio 40 part motet and mass that seems to have inspired the, uh, uh, the Talis, that we know. And actually, we haven't, we haven't done as many as, 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 as other conductors, have we? No, it's interesting because you know, I've done SPEM quite a few times, I've recorded it four times, um, but I've only done a handful of these of these 40 parters. I remember doing Gabriel Jackson's, the premiere of Gabriel Jackson's 40 part piece. That's Sanctum Est Verum Lumen, Holy is the True Light. Yes, that was with Ex Cathedra um, many, many moons ago. Um, I've done that as well. I thought it was a very effective piece, really effective piece. And it, it, it's both magnificent. Uh, and glorious, but has moments of intimacy in as well, and is manageable. Yeah, and I think that's the challenge here, isn't it? Is uh, what's going to be manageable, uh, you know, and achievable to put alongside spend because we don't necessarily have a huge amount of rehearsal time. Um, and David Bednell's piece absolutely nails this this element uh, in that it's he comes with several ideas which he layers really nicely one on top of another. Um, but doesn't make it overly complicated, and yet it's still very striking and enormously effective. Let's hear from Tom Williams of the Erebus Ensemble, for whom the piece was written. Uh, it came about as a result of a collaboration between Erebus and the Bristol Proms at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre, and its celebrated artistic director, Tom Morris. It was a slightly crazy project, uh, in that six 40-part pieces were commissioned to be performed alongside Talis's great Speminalium in a concert entitled Songs of Hope. Tom and I sat down and discussed the theme of hope and various synonyms such as light started being used 
at which point David Bednall immediately sprang to mind as someone who should be involved in the project. His music has been described by many a critic as luminous, and I was excited at the possibilities of David working with a 40-part texture on the themes of light and hope. I didn't know many of the composers involved, and as such I didn't have much control over what they produced. Thankfully, David and I are good friends, and I was able to be involved in the process from the start. David's first question was one of practicalities. How hard can it be? Well, I said, it's a group of young professional singers at the top of their game. We have full, three full days of rehearsal in London, one on stage in Bristol, but it is being performed with five other brand-new 40-part pieces and Speminalium. He smirked and said, Ah. So, I think the initial conversation evolved into an understanding that this needed to be a work that was accessible and achievable in not much rehearsal time. It needed to provide a loving nod to Talis's great model, but at the same time, it needed to show David's individual compositional voice. What was very clear when I first received the score was how closely David had studied Spem, particularly in terms of texture. Luxorta, like Spemnalium, has sections of antiphony, of block chords, rhythmic ingenuity, moments of genuine polyphony, and even solar voice effects above a dense foundation. It features intimate interplay between choirs that makes it, like Spem, almost a piece of chamber music, despite its vast scale. So, it needed to be good. Check. It needed to be achievable by good singers on a tight schedule. Check. The third thing Tom Morris and I really wanted for the work was an afterlife. So many pieces are written to spec and cease to exist outside of their original context. I really wanted this piece to have a performance life that extended beyond its premiere. I'm pleased to report that it has. Whilst it remains the only time I have performed looks with the Erebus Ensemble, I did perform it twice more with the Choir of St. Martin in the Fields. It has also been performed by the Talis Scholars, has been stunningly recorded by the Epiphany Consort under Tim Reader, and was recently performed by Genesis 16 under Coral Chihuahua's very own Eamon Dugan. There are a lot of good composers out there uh, at the moment writing in so many different styles. Um, and a lot of people who would gladly write a piece for your choir, you may think, oh, mine's just a little local choir, ask Benjamin Britten. Uh, you know, it's a great skill to write for um, a not particularly skilled choir. It's a great skill to write well for it. And there are composers of all sorts. I mean, the money side, I've just been told about what people were paid for a certain professional project, and I was slightly appalled at what they were asked to do the job for. If you go through a publisher, it can be a matter of several thousand pounds for a... Um, you know, number of minutes but this was in the low hundreds and I suppose like so much of the music business now it's it's sort of unregulated uh, what I would say is do your best to dig up some money from somewhere is there have you got an old granny hiding in the whole cupboard somewhere who might who might sponsor this because it's an amazing thing to to create new work yeah absolutely but I think a lot of choirs if if asked whether they want to commission a piece themselves the members might be more than happy to put their hands in their pockets and you know add an extra five pounds onto their you know to their subs for a year or, or whatever it might be 15 pounds it's you know then one can raise a, a reasonable amount of money relatively quickly and as you say composers are just desperate to not desperate but there's there's so many good composers out there uh, who would love to have the opportunity to write for the class and that is the challenge is writing to the brief so if you're a conductor wanting to commission i think you need to be clear in what uh, in what the outlines are for the piece, but also um, 
get the composer to come and hear your choir so they can so they can listen to it and and have a, a sort of good yardstick by which to measure the group they're writing for. I don't think it's a bad thing to say composers are desperate. We're all desperate, aren't we? I mean, it's so hard to make um, classical music work in this country. We're all doing, we all shout about how marvellously we're doing Darling all the time, but it's bloody hard out there. Um, and all of you choral directors and, and singers listening, um, we feel your pain. It's got harder. Everything's harder. I mean, storms. Now, regular storms make things harder. Train strikes, trains being cancelled, um, flights being cancelled. Uh, the lack of money, um, you know, in, in, back in the 80s, it was much easier to get money for a commission. Perhaps there were fewer of us doing it then. Um, everything's harder. So, yeah, OK, it can be a bit desperate. So get out there and, and, and give it a go. <laughs> Mon cœur se recommande à vous to plant So we'll hear now the Epiphany Consort and Tim Reader, big group of them, 40, you know, they had to find extra singers for this project. Uh, let's hear the text, Amos, we talked about the text. Light has arisen for the just, and joy for the upright in heart. O splendour of paternal glory, bringing forth light from light, Light of light and source of light, illuminating day by day. Alleluia.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or, if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via CoralChihuahua.com. Thanks.